0: Welcome to Coach and the Doctor. Not a real coach and not a real doctor. This episode, as usual, we have uh, a couple of guests. First of all, uh, Elaine Nash. She's a PhD candidate at the University of South Australia. Elaine is doing her doctoral studies on the topic disability, not inability. She's been researching the business benefits of employing people living with intellectual disability. But first up after the break is Graham Cowan, who is an author, speaker and board director at RUOK. From early 2000, he went through a five-year period of depression, including four suicide attempts. He talks about resilience and how you too could write a book just like him. Graham Cowan, up after the break on Coach and the Doctor. Thanks to Jiuldicare, who take all the stress out of support coordination.
1: Are you or someone you know in need of a compassionate support coordinator? GildaCare is your team of trusted, caring and professional support coordinators. We'll make the NDIS process easy for you and your loved ones to navigate. We'll coordinate all your care and support, specialist support and, if required, psychosocial recovery coaching. GILDA, GildaCare Support Coordination. We make the NDIS process stress-free. Visit us at gildacare.com.au.
0: J-Man inspires and supports NDIS participants to live their best lives and promotes experiences for people with a disability. The NDIS can be confusing, so if you're thinking about applying for funding or not sure how your plan actually works, J-Man can help and guide you through every step of the process at no cost to you jman.com.au That's J-A-E-M-A-N dot com dot au. Now is the time to get the most out of your NDIS. Call us for a free consultation. 1-800-JMAN This is Coach and the Doctor. Thanks to support coordinator Gildicare, who specialise in, amongst many things, psychosocial recovery coaching. Coaching, not a real coach. Doctor, not a real doctor. Hello.
2: Hello, Coach. How are you today? I'm Fantastic
0: today. We're recording this on a Friday, um, and you've got a Friday t-shirt on. I've got like a tie-dye t-shirt. I know what's going I? on with that. Oh, I went to Target the other day. I go with one of my participants who who I support, and we always go to Target and we have a, a look. and I'm always looking for the bargains, and it was like five bucks or something like that. And he it loves it. He always buys a jacket every time we go. It looks it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just that went straight over my head.
2: <laughs> anyway, enough about us. Enough, enough about, about us. you.
0: With us is Graham Cowan, who's an author, speaker, and board director at OK, which is pretty much self explanatory, doctor, isn't it?
2: It is. Well known and um, fantastic organisation. And OK
0: Day not that long ago. Graham, thanks for joining us on Coaching the Doctor. My pleasure, Coach and Doctor. Don't forget, call me coach uh, there, Graham. That used to be a thing when I was on the radio. I, I, used, uh, to I used to. How long did that take? Uh, I used to interview people huh? all the time. It on makes the it radio. about you? Were you on the radio, Coach? <laughs> I was on the radio. Many really? Years. I don't have many things to live for now, Graham. Other than my participants in my former radio career. When I talk about what I when I used to be minor, a minor B grade celebrity, um,
2: but <laughs> very but anyway, minor and uh, <laughs> B minus almost.
0: <laughs> Enough about me. I suppose we start in two thousand. Would you like to start in two thousand?
2: Yeah, 2000? yeah I think. You? so. So, because reading Graeme's bio, we work in the disability sector and um, depression and anxiety is, is I guess, a big part of our day-to-day lives. 2000 went through a five-year episode of depression. What brought that on, Graeme? Was there there a trigger for that?
3: Uh, Yeah, there probably was a trigger. I was working in recruitment at the time and I was doing a lot of work in learning e-commerce space in terms of recruiting people in that area. And uh, in 2000, the great tech crash began. And so, you know, in a very, very short period of time, all the recruitment dried up and it was a very, very stressful time and uh, it ultimately led to really serious uh, depression, losing my job, marriage breaking down, um, being estranged from my kids. So it was it was a very difficult period.
2: And had you had similar episodes or, or less severe before that or was this brand new to you?
3: No, I'd had uh, some severe episodes before. I think this was the fifth one, uh, or fifth really severe episode that I'd had. So I knew what it was, which was great, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, this one was just much, much longer and harder to get over. Graham, can I ask
0: you one question? You mightn't be able to answer this. Uh, At some stage of our lives, I think most people have depression, anxiety, Right. What takes you from being depressed and sad and and and, and angst ridden if you like or riddled if you like to actually wanting to take your life? What's that step?
3: I think it is just prolonged feeling that way and and you know, I'd been down that way for probably five years altogether. You just lose hope. And there's also this really insane belief for, after you've been going through it for so long, that you're becoming a real burden to your family, and that they'd be better off without you, I, I genuinely believe that. And I think you know, other this is, do attempt suicide. Also, many also believe that way, and it is just so incorrect. But uh, you know, when you have an illness, a mental illness for a period of time, you don't think straight. You really don't.
2: And, and Graham, you had four attempts at suicide. Was were they? <laughs> I don't even know how, how to word this. Were they real attempts or were they, because people often talk about uh, a cry for help. W- what happened, I guess?
3: Yeah, they, they were very real. I won't mention the method, but no. it's, a, it's a deadly method. And um, But I was just really fortunate that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't uh, didn't happen for me. So I, I, did, I was 100% wanting to finish it.
0: Graham, what what about the support at the time? Obviously, things have changed in the twenty-two years since two thousand, and our awareness of of, of mental health has uh, has increased. What about at the time? Did you have much support?
3: You know, I had. Uh, I was married at the time and uh, had a, a good, loving family, and uh, so I really did. But you know, I think there was feeling of a sense of shame that I was not working out myself; that I wasn't able to bounce back. Um, so I did have that support. And, uh, but, you know, again, I, I, I just felt that I wasn't really able to, I, I, was, I was a burden. The other thing was also just having this real physical illness as well. You know, I wasn't sleeping well. I had really low energy and anxiety combined with depression. So it just felt really, really overwhelming. So were you talking to
2: your family at that stage? Did they, I mean, I'm guessing they knew what you were going through, but to the level that you were going through the, or friends and family?
3: Uh, probably not, that I, not, not, not the severity of it because it was literally, you know, every day for about two years I, I, you know, just thought about taking my own life and I didn't say that to family. I, I you know, I didn't want them to be distressed or whatever, but, you know, I was actually thinking about it for a long period of time.
0: Now, this is a, a quite a long time ago. Is this still difficult for you
3: to talk about? Um, it is sometimes. It, it sort of feels a bit surreal, you know, going back to the thing, because I now have, you know, a really good and meaningful life, and that is really one of the main messages I like to share is that, you know, I was one hundred percent, 110% convinced that I would never come back from this, but it was just really keeping on going, plugging away and and taking some action that really led to it uh, coming back. And I never thought I would say this at the time, but going through that profound experience really helped me to reflect on what was important in my life. And I think my priorities changed and my sense of um, purpose changed through that experience. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I, I speak at you know, hundreds of forums in the last couple of years. I share that message because every time I share my story, it helps others to share theirs. And I really believe that as we approach Mental Health Day on October the 10th, we should be striving to share some stories of people in our organisation because sharing those stories really breaks down stigma, especially if the people that are sharing them are liked and respected in the organisation. We've made so much progress in terms of awareness, but in the workplace, there's still a lot of stigma. There really is. And, and some of it not misplaced, you know, people have shared stories and found out that, you know, their career opportunities have been limited or they've not been considered for good projects. So there's still some further work to do in uh, breaking down that stigma.
2: So what changed for you, Graeme? Because obviously you're at a pretty low point. What changed and how long did that change take?
3: Well it, it certainly wasn't overnight but I just really committed to beginning to walk and I walked every day for um uh, I started off just doing 30 minutes and then probably built it up to 45 or minutes or an hour. Doing that every day and getting into nature and really trying to be present was a, a, a really good element. The other thing was then reconnecting with family and friends you know I'd really isolated myself and I wanted to um, reconnect with people and even though I sort of didn't feel quite like it. I didn't you know I didn't know how it would go after each meeting I was just uh, it was overwhelmingly positive you know just in terms of talking about what was really going on so that was uh, an important element as well in um, getting back on track and and then Deciding to write my book back from the brink, uh, you know, where I interviewed some prominent and everyday people who'd been through real adversity. And that gave me a sense of purpose that it was no longer just about me. I was trying to share a message and not just my message, but other people's messages that this doesn't last forever. We can turn it around. And then I also, uh, surveyed as part of this book over 4,000 people to find out what worked best in their recovery. And that was, again, just sort of really building on a, on a sense of mission and purpose and really trying to make a difference. And when I wasn't feeling great, because, you know, this recovery is no means a straight line. You go from bad to really great yeah. in a very short period of time. It's, you know, you have your ups and downs. But I think even on my bad days, I was thinking about, you know, how you know, I get this finished, it will help others. That just helped me just really focus down and, um, you know, get something meaningful finished.
0: I don't know about you, Doctor, but he's very calm and relaxed. I'm feeling very calm and relaxed. Were you always this way or did you develop this? Because uh, uh, you could pretty much tell me to do anything and I'd do it for
3: you right now. <laughs> um, a, a really important part of my recovery was meditation. It's my daily ritual. It's my one thing. If I do one thing in this day, it is to meditate for for 15 to 20 minutes every morning when I get up, and then also walking in nature. So those things really, really help, and uh, I'm a huge advocate for people trying this and evaluating this. So that's maybe why I have a a calmer demeanour now. (laughs) You should meditate,
0: Coach. I've been told that I should meditate, and the first time I was told, and you've made this about me, Doctor, not me. The first time I was told, Graham, I have a, a condition, a skin condition called rosacea. Right, which is, it's like a, I think it belongs to the dermatitis family. And you, it's, you, you keep it under control, right? And a doctor I went to in the 80s said, you know, your biggest issue, and I was a, a long-haired radio DJ thinking I was cool. <laughs> in case
2: uh, you'd forgotten his was in radio. Yeah, right, yeah. And,
0: and, he, and this doctor said to me, I'll never forget this doctor's <laughs> name, I won't say his name, and sent me to a specialist and said, she said, oh, I could give you all the medicines in the world, she said, but you need to um, meditate. She said, that will help your skin. And I went, oh, don't be stupid. And to this day, I haven't done it. And look at you. <laughs> and look at me. My skin's terrible. Look, 110. Which, as we say,
2: <laughs> has got a good head for radio. But anyway, great. <laughs> what was it like writing your first book? Because you were obviously in the corporate world. That must have been quite a process.
3: Daunting. Yeah, it was. Um, but I reached out to a few people who were authors and asked, uh, you know, their suggestions, their advice. And I also, uh, retained quite early on a, um, an editor to help with that process and, and also a group who did help with the publication part of it. But still, you know, I did have to actually write it. And, uh, and of course the editor may played their role, but overwhelmingly it, it did remain pretty consistently my message. And, uh, you know, it, it was a sense of, trying to build a sense of meaning for myself and, um, and then asking people along the way for advice and suggestions. And uh, I've always been a, a, a lifelong learner and uh, so was able to access some really good people who gave me some good tips. So was it like a, a cathartic experience? Uh, yeah, it was. It was, um, you know, really helped... Uh, get things down on paper and somehow we're getting things down on paper it, you know i think it did play that role and it was also you know really wonderful to be able to share other people's stories as well because there was about 12 different people i interviewed there was people like um that marvelous art icon margaret ollie i interviewed her I interviewed uh, liz murray who is australia's best known and most famous poet a couple of gold medal swimmers um Petria thomas John Conrad's and so I think having that collective number of stories and so I would interview them I had to have it um, typed out and then try and basically edit it so that it was acceptable for the book so in many ways the people guided the content because it was their story there's so many questions we want to ask. We're going to take a
0: break, and then we'll come back. And there's a question that Amy's written down. I don't need to say Amy, our producer now, because she's more than a producer and everybody knows us, so it's just Amy. Really? Yeah, oh, it's okay. just Amy. Everybody knows Amy. I've, I've lots of emails. I have more emails about for Amy than I do for, <laughs> well, not me, but for the doctor. No, one seems to no I still in, get more emails in, than, than Amy. <laughs> 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 I can guarantee in his job he gets a lot <laughs> of emails. But there's a great question she's got here, and we're going to talk a little bit about your awareness before. 2000 and, and whether or not your perception of mental health and mental illness uh, has changed since then obviously it has but we'll uh, we'll have a chat about that that's after the break here on coach and the doctor thanks to Man active if the body is active the mind will follow get out and have some walks like Graham Cowan back after this break. Man inspires and supports NDIS participants to live their best lives and promotes experiences for people with a disability. The NDIS can be confusing, so if you're thinking about applying for funding or not sure how your plan actually works, JMAN can help and guide you through every step of the process at no cost to you jman.com.au That's J A E-M-A-N.com.au. Now is the time to get the most out of your NDIS. Call us for a free consultation.
1: 1-800-JMAN Dildacare is a team of trusted, caring and professional support coordinators. Founded on the principle that it takes a village, we want to lock arms and build a long-standing relationship. One in which we are able to deliver quality support coordination. We offer additional services such as specialist support coordination and psychosocial recovery coaching. GILDA, GILDA Care, support coordination. We make the NDIS process stress-free. Google GILDA
0: This is Coach and the Doctor brought to you by GILDA who take all the stress Out of support coordination and somebody who's taken all my stress is Graham Cowan, who's the author, speaker and a board director. of talking about you okay? I was about to say, you increase my level of stress. Uh, The doctor and the coach, your coach and the doctor. Uh, Not a real coach, not a real doctor, but definitely. And what's it described here for Graham? Let me just have a look at my notes there. Um, A resilience expert. (laughs) Wow! I bet you I never thought you'd be called cool, that, Graham. Welcome back. Anyway,
3: <laughs> you know, one of the things that has been fantastic is, first of all, sharing messages in a book, but then being asked to speak. And you know, first of all, it was mainly being invited to speak in rural areas because often they've got a real shortage of mental health professionals out there, and and that gradually built and built and built. And now, certainly for the last five years, I just do a lot of work. Uh, speaking to major organizations and their employees. And I talk about self care, which is, which is building our personal resilience, crew care, which is building our team care and psychological safety. And then red zone care, which is how we identify someone who's stressed and have the are you okay conversation. So all those three areas play a really important role for building, you know, more mentally healthy and uh, and resilient teams in the workplace.
0: Can I just ask that question I said I was going to ask, Amy, you get credit for this. Now it says prior to 2000, had your mental health been a point of difficulty for you and what was your perception awareness of mental health and depression then?
3: I, I would say probably, I probably had my first major episode of depression in about 19, 1980, I guess it was. And at that stage there was really poor awareness around mental health. like beyond blue or the black dog institute really didn't exist and i went through this really bad insomnia and anxiety and i had no idea what contributed to that i really didn't because there really was not open discussion about depression or anxiety uh, back then so we've come a long way in terms of what's happened and you know groups like are you okay and lifeline and Black Dog and Beyond Blue have all played a really important role there, but I still, I still know that there is a lot of stigma in the workplace, and uh, people still do have reluctance to talk about it openly.
2: I, I think that's that's a really fair comment, and I think sometimes maybe the relationships in the workplace have a a line to them mm. where you don't. You don't want to cross that line. And so you probably don't know how to ask that question to somebody, which is why I think something like Are You OK Day is a fantastic initiative. And I was going to ask you about Are You OK? You, um, you're not an executive director. When was it started? How long has it been around?
3: Uh, it was started in 2009. And our founder was Gavin Larkin. And I helped Gavin to launch it in Parliament House in September 2009. Gavin tragically passed away from cancer in 2011, but it's just uh, sensational that you know this this momentum has continued, and uh, you know we have now 87% unprompted awareness of what are you okay is about, and even better is that you know close to 50% of people have asked someone, "Are you okay?" in the last uh, in the last 12 months or so. So it's played a really important role, and I think one of the important elements was really the tagline that a conversation could change a life and uh you know gavin started the 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 movement because he tragically lost his father to suicide and we could have had a international suicide prevention day and and to be honest not much would have happened Mm. but when we hear a a vision like a conversation could change a life we all know that, that that that's true. You know, we've been on the, we've been the recipient of a conversation that has really helped us, and uh, and quite often we've also instigated a conversation where it's really helped someone who's going through a very very tough period.
2: I love the simplicity of it. It's a, it's a closed question almost that you have to answer. Are you okay? Well, my next question is that exactly. How often do
0: you ask yourself that question?
3: Well. Yeah, I, I also have a podcast called The Caring CEO. And one of the people I interviewed was Emma Hogan. And uh, she is the secretary, AKA CEO of a large uh, government department in New South Wales, about 9,000 people. And I mentioned before, I talk about uh, self care, crew care, and red zone care. And I was interviewing her about Are You OK? And, and, and she's had her own mental health struggles, which she's talked about. But uh, before we even mentioning those, you know, those, that, that care trifecta, she said, I, I, I really think for are you okay? We really need to ask ourselves three questions. Am I okay? And that's about self care. Are we okay? That's about crew care. And then are, we, uh, are you okay? Which is about the red zone care. So when people have that more holistic outlook, that's when you get culture change. And at the end of the day, the teams are the building block of any organization. And if you can have a great team who works well together, it's it's a great predictor of not only just a successful team, but also an engaged and healthy team. In my, um, you know, webinars and also live presentations, I talk about the evolution of are You U OK? and how it's become an amazing movement. And it's really been one of the great teams that I've been part of. And I ask people to reflect on what's a great team you've been part of. It could have been your Year Nine netball team, your footy team, when you worked at McDonald's, this job, previous job. But what was it that makes it special? And I use a instrument called Minty, which allows you to have an online poll. You know, there's a QR code you go directly through to a poll, and ask people to nominate what are the what are three out of ten things that are common to you in a great team you've been part of. And in literally nine times out of ten, the top three things are we cared about each other, we had each other's back, and we enjoyed working together. And, uh, you know, that, that trifecta is something we should all be striving for in our own teams, whether they're work teams or even, you know, a personal crew as well.
2: So it's like finding your tribe, whether it be in a work environment or a personal environment. 100%.
3: 100%. And, and we're hardwired to want to feel a sense of connection and belonging. And that's what a tribe is about. You do, you do feel that connection, belonging, you feel safety, you feel supported. And uh, that can be a real preventative measure from having a mental illness.
0: So what are the chances of slipping back into something like you've had for you Uh, i'm trying to verbalize what i'm thinking because you know the old saying is misery loves company if you hang around people that are sad you become sad you hang around people that are happy you become happy but in this case people that are sad or depressed you have to speak to them you have to talk to them because you want to help them so what about your own mental health when you're speaking to these people does it affect your own mental health? That's what I'm trying to ask I suppose because yeah, I,
3: I have to be careful with my mental health because I my, my psychiatrist says you know I always have a predisposition to it but uh, you know one of the things that I you know I'm really very rigorous about is incorporating things each day that do help my mental health and I talk about th- three areas of mental health or, or health generally and well-being. The first is vitality, and that's our physical health, making sure we have enough exercise, enough rest, and and eat well. The second one is intimacy, and this is our social or emotional health. And having people around you in your personal life and also your work life that are part of your tribe that do have a common goal to support each other and help each other out. And the third element is what I call prosperity, and that's our contribution health. So that comes about sharing important messages, just like you are doing now, coach and doctor. You know, sharing stories of hope is good for your well-being. I know you feel that, and you wouldn't uh, be wouldn't do this so regularly if you didn't know that it was making a difference. So those three things—vitality, intimacy, prosperity—form an acronym of VIP, and my message often to people is to, you know, you have to act like a VOP. What that means is topping up your physical health, your emotional health, and your contribution health each day. And they're, they're things that help to immunise us from stress and depression. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, I'm not perfect. In fact, about six months into the pandemic, I already felt my mental health declining, I started to get anxiety back and insomnia. But I pretty quickly reached out to my psychiatrist, and he said, well, the first thing we've got to get under control is not sleeping well. And anyway, and he so well, anyway, we put things in place that restored it. One of the key messages that came out of my books was a guy called Bob Borstein, who's, who's the Director of Public Affairs. He was the Director of Public Affairs to Google in Washington. And he said that, you know, ultimate liberty revolves around being your own therapist what he means by that is being able to recognize your triggers and and early indicators of an episode coming on and do something about it you know making self-care a priority and uh, one of the real mantras i advocate is that self-care isn't selfish you know we can't help each other if we're not in great shape ourselves and uh, that's got to be a big priority for all of us.
0: What happens if people just don't like him? People don't like me, uh, <laughs> Graham. So what do I do? We've well, got this far. <laughs> no, I'm being hard on myself. I shouldn't no, say not that. Really. No, I
2: shouldn't say no, that, Graham. No, people don't like you. Myself. No, people don't like you. People don't like me. <laughs> they tell me all the time. I'm trying to get better. <laughs> um, so, Graham, you've written five books. Is there another one in the wings?
3: Yeah, there is, and and that's going to be about. You know called the caring ceo which will be sharing the insights that i've got uh you know having interviewed about getting up towards 35 36 senior leaders that champion both a culture of care and a culture of high performance it is more of the workplace side of things but the lessons are just as relevant in our families as well knowing that uh, we want people to be their best we want the, we want to feel connected with our home crew as well as our, our work crew we want people to feel safe and to feel supported and know that we have each other's back, but we also want to help each other grow to evolve. I love the the saying by Henry Ford, which was, "It doesn't matter whether you're eighteen or eighty if you've stopped learning, you're old." And uh, you know, I think all of us need to you know stay fresh by learning new things and um, continually trying to be a better version of ourselves each day.
0: Well, there's an elephant in the room. Oh, where is it? It's over there. Oh, there it is. NDIS. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, it's
3: a it's a great uh, initiative and you too are much, much more across this than I am. But I, but I also know that it's a very cumbersome thing to interact with. It can be very difficult for people to get the right help that they need. And I know that, you know, Jamin plays a very important role in this regard, helping to guide people to the options that are there because, let's face it, every time the government get in, gets involved, it's never simple, is it? You know, no. It's never simple.
2: never is. It does a lot of wonderful
0: things, but, yes, you're right, it becomes a, a bit of a... Uh, what's the elephant. word? Elephant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, elephant. Yeah. Uh, uh, Graham, the doctor asked you something off-air, which I'm going to get him to ask you on-air now about what he would like to talk about, anything specifically he would like to talk about. Yeah,
2: so so in the break, you mentioned uh, wecare365.com.au. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, I uh, co-founded a business five years ago called We Care 365, and one of the reasons it was because a um, Case did an amazing job at encouraging conversations but through my experience and surveying, you know, these 4,000 people for my book, Back from the Brink, I also learned much more about help seeking. And so when I surveyed these 4,000 people to find out what worked best in their recovery, I was looking for basically a way that not only helped to have the conversation, but helped with the help seeking. We put together that and, and people can be, download a poster at wecare365.com.au. And for those that are in the workplace, uh, there's also a booklet there, a free booklet about how we build a mentally healthy culture checklist. So it goes through how we plan for it, how we launch it, how we keep the momentum going. Um, Because we know from You OK that most people would want to help, but they don't always feel confident in how to help and try to help address that in the resources we've put together in WK365.
2: Yeah, that's great because I I think you're right there, Graeme. I think sometimes people don't want to ask, are you okay, in case they get the answer they don't want to hear and then go, what do I do now?
3: We just did research this year for Are You Okay? and found out that 43% believe that a mental health professional is the best person to have a conversation with someone who's struggling. And... Whilst they are really important in anyone's recovery, I would argue that having someone as a friend or a work colleague or a family member reach out with no ulterior motive but to show that you care and to say that we support you is just as important in recovery. And I would even argue more importantly, uh, because let's face it, you know, psychiatrist doctors and uh, psychologists are well meaning people, but they get paid to help you. Uh, and that's, you know, that's also a very good thing. But that's why personal support is so important because, you know, and I'm just talking from first hand experience that they have a deep level of care which goes way beyond an economic arrangement. Graham, one more question from me anyway. What makes you happy? Uh, I'm nature, walking in nature is a big thing for me. Uh, and tomorrow I'm going on a 12 hour walk with. No uh, iPhone or music <laughs> or anything, uh, just to, you know, just reflect on a few things and um, see, yeah, and to just uh, be, in, be in the present moment. A 12-hour walk. I don't think he I've ever done anything slowly. for
0: 12 hours other than sleep, I reckon. <laughs> Maybe. 12 hours. That, and that's during business hours. That's business hours. Oh, gee, eh? he, he, he saved the best of last, <laughs> didn't he? I'll cut that bit out, though. Uh, you've been listening to Graham Cowan here on Coach and the Doctor. Graham. it's been a fantastic chat. And thanks for joining us. And I'll get a plug in because I think it actually relates to what you were talking about, and it's our J-Man Active. It's basically what you're saying, if the body is active, the mind will follow. And, of course, on the odd occasion I've mixed those words up and said if the mind is active, the body will follow. But we sort of of get the gist. I think that's a lot of what you were saying. But thanks so much for spending some time with both of us on Coach and the Doctor, Graham.
3: My pleasure.
0: Amazing man is Graham Cowan and yes, I'll use that word again, very, very inspirational. Up next on Coaching the Doctor, Elaine Nash pops in to talk about employing people living with an intellectual disability and how it can be a benefit to your business.
1: Gildacare is a team of trusted, caring and professional support coordinators. Founded on the principle that it takes a village, we want to lock arms and build a long-standing relationship, one in which we are able to deliver quality support coordination. We offer additional services such as specialist support coordination and psychosocial recovery coaching. GILDA, GILDA Care, Support Coordination. We make the NDIS process stress-free. Google GILDA Care.
0: This is Coach and the Doctor, thanks to Gildacare, where, of course, it takes a village uh, doctor, not a real doctor, and coach, not a real coach, doctor. I'm going to ask this person what the actual title means anyway. PhD candidate at the University of South Australia. So does that mean she's like uh, going to get some votes to become yeah, a, uh, candidate, a PhD? A PhD? Get... I'm not. I'm not exactly <laughs> quite sure. But anyway, without further ado, Elaine Nash, thank you so much for joining us on Coach and the Doctor.
4: My absolute pleasure, and it's lovely to meet you all. And uh, no, I'm not going for a particular position, but it's a really, really good question, actually. Like, what does PhD candidate mean?
2: A good question. That's what we do when there's a good question, Elaine. Can you hear that? Uh, yes. Uh, the- It doesn't happen often, actually, but uh, that's great.
4: (laughs) So what it really means is, I mean, you could actually also use the word PhD student as well, you know. So it basically means that I've gone through a particular process, which is a confirmation of candidature, which means that I've basically put together a research proposal that's been accepted by the university as being like thumbs up. Let's go for it. You know, this looks good. And so I'm giving a, a kind of a, a tick of approval to go ahead with the research.
0: Doctor, do you have a question for the very, very overqualified <laughs> Elaine Nash? Well, she's not
2: overqualified. She's She said she's a student. Well, yes, yeah, she oh, she's a still learning. She's still <laughs> Probably not a question, a statement disability, what not inability.
0: What a surprise he starts with a statement. But anyway, keep no, going. No,
2: disability, not inability is, is the topic of, of the study, is my understanding. I love it because we often, the coach and I often talk about the right wording for people with a disability, we're involved with the NDIS, and do we use all abilities, condition, where does it go to? And I've never heard of disability, not inability, um, and I love it. Where did that come from?
4: Look, it really came from the person who started this work in the first place, which is my principal supervisor, Dr Basil Tucker at the University of South Australia. So um, he did some really interesting research as a consultant going back quite a few years ago now about the productivity of people who live with an intellectual disability that were working in, actually it was a bit more like a sheltered workshop. So they were working in like a laundry, a laundry which is part of um, what was an institution in South Australia called Strathmont, it's now closed. But it was one of those places where people with intellectual disability lived and also worked And so he um, was asked to do some research on the productivity of the people that worked there, and he actually found that those people that worked there had a productivity level of about 119%. Wow. So they were, like, super, super good at what they did. And he did this quite a number of years ago and has always stayed with him. So he thought I'm now at the University of South Australia I'm, a doc, you know, I'm I'm a PhD I'm in accounting so he's an accountant by background and he said I want to take this further and find out what this is really all about. So this whole idea about the PhD topic really came out of his his thinking and his background.
0: I have to admit when I've been to workshops and we've been doing some uh, some stuff some filming recently I've never seen anybody sitting there slackening off. They all seem to be actually involved and doing something that they enjoy. So that seems obvious now when you think about it, but that's always the case.
2: One of our sponsors, J-Man, does have an employee that has an intellectual disability and they are always asking for more work. What else do you want me to do? Give them a task that's done what's the next thing yeah he probably goes at a 119 percent and he's always wanting to pay for coffees and buy your lunch and it's like mate
0: no 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 it's okay we can we can do that he's an incredibly generous person
4: Do you know what what you're both talking about now is one of the major thing that is coming out of this research so what I've been doing so my background is I'm a social worker I've been in the disability sector or worked in the disability sector for about 30 odd years and I started, started you as a baby did you PhD. Uh, thank you. Extremely kind. Um,
0: oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the, for whatever reason, I don't know. Everybody seems to love the doctor and they don't like me, but that's probably one of the reasons I would say because he says all the right that, things at the right that, time.
4: That could be one of the reasons. Um,
2: <laughs> Sorry, keep going.
4: So we've been doing this, this well, I've been researching literature for about the last eight months, and one of the things that's coming out really strongly is improvements in profitability. Like when you hire people who live with intellectual disability, there's a whole lot of gains that you get. And one of those gains is profitability. The other one is greater cost effectiveness. There's lower employee turnover. There's higher rates of employee loyalty as well. And turnover can cost business an enormous amount of money. Like, you know, if you're going through a lot of employees, you you train them. And then they're there and they stay for a while and then they go. This is not what we see with people with intellectual disability. Quite often they're extremely loyal to their employers and they change the culture as well. They turn it into a bit more of a positive culture because as um, the coach was just saying, people with intellectual disability want to do things like buy people coffees and just enjoy being with them and, and so on. So it's kind of interesting.
2: In your research, is there, what are the sort of roles or, or tasks that these people are fulfilling?
4: Well, it's interesting because um, when we look at open employment, which is where people with, who live with intellectual disability just work in just general jobs, they're like open employment and get you know, a wage for what they do because there are different types of employment settings that people with intellectual disability work in. Um, quite often they're in administrative roles, for example, They can also work in hospitality and in tourism. So, and there's a a really interesting study that's come out of Israel where they're actually working in the military as soldiers. You know, I mean, obviously, someone with an intellectual disability like my, you know, like myself would not be a neuroscientist or an astrophysicist, for example, or a Um, doctor, but or or indeed, (laughs) like your good self.
2: Correct. Thank you. Not a real. Not a real. Not a real.
4: But, you know, is there any limits to other places where people with intellectual disability may be able to work? I'm not sure there is. You know, it's just about the company or the business creating and customising the job that fits that particular person's skills. I think there's also, um, you know, things like uh, entertainment industry, movie industry. There's some really interesting projects that have happened where people with intellectual disability have been involved in creating films um and uh, you know etc there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening out there
2: so elaine how did you how did you get involved in this i mean was it just something a passion or was it you knew someone tell us the story
4: i'm a social worker by background and worked in the disability sector for about 30 years um and as you say i started when i was five <laughs> i think, yep, I think yep. you mentioned that <clears throat> and i worked for the public service for South australia for quite a long time so i um i worked managing operations and uh, managing strategy. I was involved in the NDIS role out here in South Australia. And um, I had always worked with adults with intellectual disability. And some of those people also had mental health issues as well. So I kind of was very passionate about the barriers that people with intellectual disability face every day. And one of those huge barriers has always been employment. If you have an intellectual disability in Australia, even today, you're very likely to be unemployed in some form or another. You're, in fact, very likely to be in poverty as well. You're also very likely to maybe not have adequate housing or access to adequate housing. So there's a whole range of barriers that are put up simply because you have this label of intellectual disability. And obviously, you you will most likely have some limitations that come along with having an intellectual disability but there will also be a whole range of strengths that you bring to 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 things as well you know to to your everyday life as well as we all do.
2: And so have you looked at the SLES program within the NDIS do you know much about it?
4: I know a little bit about the SLES program correct
2: and what are your thoughts on it? For those who don't understand what that means would you
0: mind explaining what that means?
2: Uh, Well, one of the programs that the NDIS run is to uh, school lever employment services or something. I can't even remember what the last S stands for, but it's essentially helping those with a disability, intellectual disability, gain employment and stay employed. Okay. So you can provide support workers to to, to help them get the job and then even work with them in the workplace. Would that be fair?
4: That would be fair. That would be fair.
2: Do you know how it's going? Look, we, We don't have... I haven't seen a lot of it there are some specialist providers out there
4: i attended the disability work summit i was asked to present on this research at disability work summit and the ndia they've been doing a review of the program and some really interesting findings have come out you know for example young people really not knowing about the program also not happening early enough and like when should you start the transition from school to employment it should probably start really early and also really not exploring all of the options there's something that happens for young people with intellectual disability which is a cycle of low expectations and this cycle of low expectations can flow through your whole life so if people think and when i say people it's not done on purpose Do you know what i mean yeah. like there's there's no judgment there there's simply like this cycle of low expectations that can occur well you know you might want to do this, but do you really have the skills to do it?
0: Well, I've got a question that I'm going to ask now and have a think about it. We're going to have a quick break. Uh, it's a pretty obvious question. How do you change those perceptions? But we'll have a quick break. Elaine, you're listening to Coach and the Doctor. Thanks to Jewel Care Support Coordinators who, amongst many things, specialise in psychosocial recovery coaching. With us is Elaine Nash, who is a budding PhD candidate, She's a, a budding candidate She's a student
1: <laughs> we'll I'm come- a student
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're all students of life let's be honest, uh, I know that's corny but that's true, we'll come back uh, after the break and have a chat with Elaine some more
1: Are you or someone you know in need of a compassionate support coordinator? Gilda Care is your team of trusted, caring and professional support coordinators. We'll make the NDIS process easy for you and your loved ones to navigate. We'll coordinate all your care and support, specialist support and, if required, psychosocial recovery coaching. GILDA, Gilda Care Support Coordination. We make the NDIS process stress-free. Visit us at gildacare.com.au.
0: J-Man inspires and supports NDIS participants to live their best lives and promotes experiences for people with a disability. The NDIS can be confusing, so if you're thinking about applying for funding or not sure how your plan actually works, J-Man can help and guide you through every step of the process at no cost to you jman.com.au That's J-A-E-M-A-N.com.au Now is the time to get the most out of your NDIS. Call us for a free consultation. 1-800-JMAN You're listening to Coach and the Doctor. Thanks to J-Man Active. If the body is active, the mind will follow. Now, Doctor, did you notice I put a big smile on my face when I did that? Because as a radio jock many, many years ago... That's what I was told to do. Now, I've got a quick story I'll tell you before we get back in Can the I roll my you eyes now? You can roll your eyes. And, Elaine, you might find this interesting as well. Elaine Probably Nash is not. with us. Um, uh, <laughs> many years ago, back in the 80s, I got told I was boring on the radio. They said, you're just boring. You, uh, I told him that yesterday. I
4: don't. You employed the? I don't believe that. They yeah. <laughs> said, you're
0: just boring. He said, you don't, you don't sound as if you're in, into it. And a colleague of mine called Dean Banks at the time in Canberra, he said to me, what is it you like the most in life? Who is it you like the most? And at, the, at that time, it was Olivia Newton-John. I just thought she was just the greatest thing in the world, right? Yeah. So I went into the studio the next day, and he put up a picture of Olivia Newton-John mm-hmm. right in front of me, a big poster. And I thought, you idiot, Banks. He said, every time you switch that microphone on, I want you to look at Olivia Newton-John does it put a smile on your face? I said yes. He said, "Well, you look at her and put a big smile on your face." And to this day, twenty, twenty-five years uh, later, I still think of Olivia Newton-John when I put a big smile on. My face. <laughs> Elaine Nash, I asked you a question before, yes. uh, and we we're talking about the, I suppose, the bar is really not that high when it comes to employment and expectations. For people with uh, with mental health issues or intellectual disability, mm-hmm. and as you said, it's not necessarily people deliberately doing it or employers deliberately doing it. It's just the way it is at the moment or perceptions. But I also think a lot of the participants put low expectations on themselves. It's a vicious circle. What's first, the chicken or the egg here?
4: I think it's a, it's such a great question, actually.
0: Oh, no, no. Yes. It is Can we wrap this up? That's two, two great questions, Tuesday. <laughs> yes, keep going, <laughs>
4: Um Because, look, I, I actually think that when you look at the history of the way that society has treated people with intellectual disability or people with mental health issues, then it kind of gives you a clue as to why we're still doing it now. Intellectual disability as a concept didn't actually exist until the 1920s you know, when a guy called Alfred Binet starts to develop IQ tests. And this is done for a particular historical reason at the time, which is really like from probably from Binet's perspective, it was actually about helping people. It was actually about identifying children that maybe had some issues academically and then could improve. But it also happened to feed into the eugenics movement at a time, and also was often done in custodial places like prisons, for example. What actually happened was that a lot of people from this IQ testing that happened in the early 1920s were actually institutionalized and segregated from community because rationality and reason was privileged. So we start to sort of cut down humanity. So if humanity sits on a spectrum, We start to cut it down to those people that perhaps society wants to privilege, and we see this everywhere, of course. Mm -hmm. We see it not only in disability, we see it in race, we see it in gender, we see it in a whole range of other spaces as well. So I think that this, this history is still evident today in terms of the way that we still segregate people with intellectual disability and still segregate People who have mental health issues, for example. So, so we don't get to privilege the, the 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 positive nature of characteristics that we all bring. We don't value all of us. If we if we exclude some of us, we don't value all of us. You know, it's that kind of narrative. Mm.
0: Is the NDIS you think a step forward in 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 promoting? People with intellectual disability uh, to to, to yeah. better jobs and better lives,
4: and and look, I, I really do believe that is the case. Like I've been in I've been an operational manager many many years ago, where the state government would give a certain amount of funding, but only to a small number of people, yeah, just
2: some block funding.
4: Yeah, exactly. So now, at least now, um, there is the potential for more people to actually get funding, and I think that it's. You know, everyone says this, you know, it's, it's a really big social reform. It's as big as Medicare and look how long Medicare took to be okay and we're even still building that now. You know, we're even still sort of like reflecting on that now. I think that potentially with this change of government, we start to see a shift back to perhaps philosophically what the NDIS was really all about. But time will tell, time will tell, and there are, there are still problems
2: Look, they're talking a big game and a good game at the moment, the new government, um, and we're certainly hopeful that, um, that everything they're talking about gets implemented. Um, I, I do want to talk to you, Elaine, about, I guess, some of the challenges that an employer faces because it's, it's all well and good to say more people with an intellectual disability should be employed, but there are real issues or um, considerations that an employer has to make. What are the main ones that, that you found?
4: We're yet to really go into our data collection from each of the areas uh, that typically employ people with intellectual disability. But I can tell you certainly what the literature says, and that talks about things like employers being worried about costs of accommodations, like reasonable accommodations in the workplace. So those might be things for people with intellectual disability, it could be, for example, you're uh, working in a hospitality place, And you may need some things up as visuals, like standard operational procedures in the kitchen, for example, as visuals rather than the written word. You might need a little bit more training and you might need a little bit bit more of support. So certainly those things are the things that employers talk about. What we've found, though, what I've found in the research and also speaking to some relevant people, is that quite often the perception about the cost of accommodation that it doesn't cost as much as what people perceive that it's going to. In fact, the literature often talks about it really hasn't cost very much at all. So employers are worried about that. They're also worried, I think, about how the person with intellectual disability is going to fit in to the culture of the organisation. And look, I think that it takes support to include, genuinely include people into organisations. But isn't it true for all of us in terms of where we work and in terms of creating inclusive workspaces and places where people feel that they belong? There's this really interesting uh, model called Appreciative Inquiry where this guy called David Cooper Ryder, who developed a, it's an American model, basically says that organizations are centers of human relatedness. Wherever you work, it's a center of human relatedness. And sometimes those work cultures are gonna support human relatedness, and sometimes they're not. You know, sometimes they're going to be places where conflict arises or bullying happens.
0: So do you think that the, 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 even before a person with intellectual disability starts a job, they're up against it because they're expecting or the employer is probably is expecting something to go wrong eventually, which is unfair because that can happen to any employee at any stage, as you said.
4: It's really interesting, I I talked to a number of MBA classes about the study that we're doing here in South Australia. And it's really interesting how, I mean, often what you get in MBA classes are people that are middle range managers quite often, and often they're responsible for employment. And a number of people say, well, you know, what about, I would never employ someone with an intellectual disability because of work health and safety issues. But when you actually look at the research, it doesn't actually pan itself out at all for that to be one of the issues. Because like everybody, we have to be inducted into workplaces. But someone with an intellectual disability might need to be inducted in a different way and they might need some additional supports and supervision initially. But it doesn't play itself out that they're any less or any more unsafe, if I've said that correctly, as all of us.
2: Which is really interesting because then you, what you're essentially saying is that it's the middle managers... And those that are employing people need the training to understand or be told what the numbers are because what their belief system is isn't actually correct. But as a middle manager, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that's probably, if not the first piece of the puzzle, it's a real important piece. Because I know anecdotally with J-Man and they've got a, uh, an employee with intellectual disability, which is what we talked about before, culturally and what he brings to the office is incredible because he brings everybody up. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, there are issues, but you're talking about those numbers that don't stack up. I mean, mm-hmm. I've never heard those numbers. And, and, and I would have thought, yeah, there's the middle management comment of they have to be more inducted or whatever the word is. It kind of makes sense without knowing. So then the question is, Elaine... How do we do that?
4: You know, that's it, a good question, Doctor. That is a great question.
2: Thank you.
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it, it,
0: does great question. <laughs> it, it great. Or, oh, okay. Okay. Two okay. yeah,
4: That's an Olivia Newton John moment.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think it's a building an enabling environment. You know, how do we build this enabling environment? And you're quite right. It's it's. I think it, like as you say, it's foundation number one. It's like when you build a foundation, you know, and you build it solidly, it's actually about giving people the information. And I often think, would it be something like a training package that we have that addresses racism in the workplace or addresses gender stereotype in the workplace? Is it something similar? Do people really know where intellectual disability started and what happened to thousands of people that were labelled and are labelled with intellectual disability? You know, are people kind of aware that many people with intellectual disability really only have a mild to upper-moderate kind of, you know, limitation that may affect affect each of them differently. So you might have someone with an intellectual disability that has difficulty reading or maybe they have difficulty with maths, but that's easily easily accommodated for. There's this thing about if you get it right for someone with an intellectual disability, you actually get it right for everybody because if you're providing visuals for the employee with an intellectual disability guess what I've got English as a second language that makes sense to me too or you know I have a cognitive lim- limitation due to a mental health issue or whatever you know if I get if if we get it right for the employee with intellectual disability culturally and in policy wise and operational procedure wise you can pretty much get it right for everyone
0: so do you ever switch off if you go out do you scan the room and see how they've be- how people with intellectual disability are being treated or people with disability in general being treated because i know as part of a providing uh, company i mean, I switch off but i i watch a lot more i'm a much more observant is the word i'm looking for
4: you know that's a really good point uh
0: coach no wasn't a question uh okay She did say coach and good point in the one sentence We trained her well
1: (laughs) Because,
4: you know, there's something about the always, always making sure that we're looking at what's happening in the world You know, there's something about that, isn't there? Mm. You know, like looking out for, you know what is actually really going on?
2: Well, Well, uh, that's the $64 million Mm. question One question I want to ask is How do employees get more involved with it? I mean, is the government doing enough? Is it a government issue? Is it an employer issue? Is it an individual issue? Or is it all three?
4: I think it's all three. Uh, The government now has a strategy called um, Employ My Ability Strategy. Um, It was developed by the previous government, but I don't believe that's changed at the moment with the current government.
2: So what's um, that called? Employ it's my- called
4: Employ My Ability. It's right. a disability employment strategy. And, and number one, it has, there's two strategies, Australia's disability strategy, and then there's Employ My Ability, which has employment as number one. We've also seen, and I've, I'm yet to really look at the statistics, but we've also seen the census come come back in terms of how many people with a disability are actually employed. And I, I don't believe that it's changed significantly to what it was before. If anything, it's gone. I've heard that it's actually gone down. People with disability are participating less in the workplace, even though we have labor force shortages.
2: Yeah, and that's what I was thinking about, because it's um, from from the research that we've got, that I've got in front of me, it's saying only 32% of people with an intellectual disability are employed, which that's means fine. that 68% unemployment in intellectual disability, those with an intellectual disability. And as you said, sometimes it's just a mild intellectual disability that the average person wouldn't even know.
4: That's exactly right. Can I say that I have worked, um, one of my roles was working with the intake team for Intellectual Disability Services Council, where we would actually do the diagnostic assessment of intellectual disability. And I was a social worker on the team with some psychologists. In many cases, the people that we were assessing had just a mild intellectual disability, which put their IQ score, you know, 70 or below, basically. What they could do functionally in the community, you know, catch a bus. Uh, you know, many people with intellectual disability drive cars.
2: Yeah, they could be driving the bus, couldn't they?
4: They could be driving the bus.
0: Uh, Elaine Nash, thanks yeah. so much for your time. And just before we go, Elaine, what do you do for kicks? What makes you happy?
4: What makes me happy? That's a really
2: good question. Ah, oh, uh, oh, here we go. There we go.
4: <laughs>
2: Please don't um, say you live in Newton, John. <laughs> <laughs> See,
0: I told you he's a funny one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: Do you know what makes me happy is um, is putting on my running shoes and going for a little jog and still be able to run, which is is getting less and less. Yeah. But that's what makes me happy. Okay. Oh, and,
0: what do you listen to I mean, when you're running? Who do you listen to?
4: I think from now
0: on it's going to be J-Man podcast. Perfect We'll have her back. That's fantastic. Perfect answer. Elaine Nash, thanks so much for your time and thanks for joining us on Coaching the Doctor. Thanks to J-Man Active. Visit J-A-E-M-A-N.com.au for all the latest activities. Thanks again. No
4: worries.
0: Thank you. Definitely food for thought from Elaine. Next episode, we feature a truly remarkable person in Joanna Garvin. Born premature and she suffered a lung hemorrhage just three days into the world. And she said, well, it was tough, especially in her teenage years.
1: High school was a lot more
4: challenging, I think because of puberty and I found it quite hard to find the right friendship group. And then learning was quite challenging for me. I didn't learn as quickly as other people. So everything just took me a bit longer to learn. And also when I was 13, my dad died.
0: Joanna talks with us on what it's like living with cerebral palsy and also about her budding career in the film industry. Gabriella Springall is the other guest. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, working on short and long-term implications of anorexia nervosa on physical and mental health.
4: I personally had an eating disorder when I was an adolescent. Not anorexia, but um, another eating disorder. It's basically out of my own interest seeing how, understanding better how the patients cope, what are the causes and then what are the long-term outcomes really gives me an understanding to myself
1: and then also um, I would like to help people having experienced it myself.
0: That's next episode on Coach and the Doctor. Till then, Doctor. Press hard three copies. Have a great week, Coach Anne.
1: You've been listening to Coach and the Doctor. Thanks to J-Man Active. Gilda is a team of trusted, caring and professional support coordinators. Founded on the principle that it takes a village, we want to lock arms and build a long-standing relationship, one in which we are able to deliver quality support coordination. We offer additional services such as specialist support coordination and psychosocial recovery coaching. GILDA. GILDA Support coordination. We make the NDIS process stress-free. Google GILDA Care.